So today on Permaculture Tonight, we have an extraordinary guest. We have Mark Shepard, and he's going to be talking to us about starting a business, about using the stun method, about ecological models of farming and land restoration, about talking on a panel at the UN Climate Talks this year. Just absolutely amazing stuff. So sit tight and check it out. Here we go. Up is optional. Ha! Well, you know, I mean, I, I I say that, and people see me as this like big kid all the time because uh, I've got children, and I'm always like very, you know, animated and whatnot. But there's a big difference between there's this all right. There's this changeover I see as between selfish and being community minded, and then being generationally minded. And I became generationally minded when my son was only a few months old and my wife got cancer and we had to be separated for an extended period of time um, and she was radioactive. And so it like changed everything in my head and I just became like focused, you know, it focused me. <laughs> wow. Wow. You know, cause you're reminding me of all, you know, all the stuff that I've gone through and my wife's gone through and shit like that. That's heavy duty Three months old. It really screwed us up because wow. she she had to be separated from him, um, wow. and she's had cancer twice after that. So, you know, I mean, we just fight what we fight, and I know what I know now because of all the stuff I've studied in, about epigenetics, and then all the stuff I've studied about permaculture and soil science and health. It's all there. We got all the pieces. I just got to get my butt in gear and get, you know, a large scale farm in gear so that the, the abundance that just comes off of that is just stuff we live off of. And we have to, we have to do it for real, not just like, you know, talking about it or blogging about it or being a like monger on Facebook. We actually have to put shit in the ground and, and live this way. Yeah, we have to change our physical, like our entire like phys physiology. I mean, we are designing children to sit and to work on a computer really well, and I'm good at that. And people online see me all over the place, and I'm doing the social media thing, but you know what? Physically, that's that's the opposite of, of, of building me. That's destroying me, sitting and right. touching a computer, and, like, it's destroying me. But when I'm outside and, and working with nature, it's building me. And I think that most people don't understand that, and it takes this hard work. You get over this, like, this hump, and then you're loving it. It is hard work, but it's it's also you know it, it's it's so enjoyable. It's it's pleasant. You know, and you don't have to hurry. You work all the time. You don't have to work hard. You know, sometimes you do have to. Something's big or heavy, you got to move it. But you know, it's just like that's what we do. Is we we're these big animals and we move around in our habitat and we live this way. <laughs> yeah, and it's beautiful. And what is kind of beautiful about it, too, is as I remember a long time ago hearing Bill Mollison 
talk about the fact, oh, once you get your place set up, you know, then you can kind of like go away for long periods of time and help other people set their places up. It's like, yeah, right. He's never like lived on a farm, you know, whatever. And so it was years and years and years of, of getting our place set up. He made it sound like it was going to happen real quick, just a couple, three months or whatever. Now you're set up. Well, now that it is set up, um, I, I can go all over the place. I'll have to be there a certain period of time. That's incredible. Which is really, it's really nice. You know, the, the ability to travel and come back in the places is, you know, even more productive. <laughs> Basically, it doesn't seem like there's any investments that are truly like that nowadays, where you can create something that gives you freedom of movement and also appreciates in value at the same time and is physical and like concrete like that. Well, and that's that's one of the reasons why you know I very deliberately chose you know the word restoration as part of uh, you know restoration agriculture is that we can go to degraded uh, real estate. We can go to farms that have, you know, half washed away or, you know, blown the fertility all the heck, destroyed the soil structure, et cetera, you know, strip it all down to nothing but, you know, bare dirt. And we can do actual restoration work by imitating, you know, natural plant communities uh, and selecting, um, you know, genetically uh, improved cultivars of each of the different plants within that natural community. We're doing genuine restoration work, which is really important to happen. Uh, and we're growing food in the meantime, and we're using it to pay the bills, and we're taking this, this asset for real and really appreciating its value because if we sell it later on down the line, if somebody wants to, they can cut everything down and we've, we've restored the soil fertility. Now they can go abuse it again the next time if that's what they want to do. You know, so we're restoring, we're restoring the, the ecology, the soil, the hydrology, <clears throat> wildlife populations rebound, um, and we restore rural economies. You know, I don't know if you saw on my Facebook page a couple of days ago, you know, Organic Valley, billion dollars in sales. You know, I was grower number 24 when we got started. There's 2,400 of us now that are all involved. And when, you know, when I first got started, we had this dream of maybe someday having a billion dollars in sales. Well, a billion, that, that's a lot bigger than a million. So why not and why don't, why haven't they so far, all permaculturists banded together and pooled their production. That's so interesting. Scale. Okay, so that's really interesting because Grant and I kind of talked about this, Grant Schultz and I, when he was on, because Jeff Lawton said that he's creating these things called Farm Share Farms where he's getting people to buy in equity and invest in the farm, and then they get basically below market, 20% um, below market value on everything that comes out of the farm. So they, and they get like these shares. So people are doing that in the U.S. I think a lot because people want have this this vision. And you, you've talked about this in other, in other talks, I know, about this, the dream. And getting over the dream is a huge part of like winning the war, right? With acquiring land and, and doing a permaculture farm, right? What do you mean particularly by getting over the dream? Well, this whole like, I'm going to be a lone man and I'm going to figure oh. out, I'm going to buy it all myself in cash. And then I'm going to, you know what I mean? Like wanting and not and not going through the like, go like the IRS schedule F farm business, you know? Um, going through getting a loan, building equity, building our credit, you know, all the different steps that 
are there for us to take that that you you talk about, you know. Um, but because, as, because the reason why things aren't happening is we aren't taking the steps. Yeah. Uh, that are part of the system that is created uh, around us. This is how our system works. You know, plug into it. Another thing that's kind of interesting too is is a lot of you know uh, people want to go you know lone wolf on the, however they're marketing their stuff because they've got an angle or a better idea. We have to recreate a new food system, you know, distribution system and all that kind of stuff. It's like you know what? There's already a food distribution system in place that moves hundreds of millions of tons of food a minute, probably. And all you have to do is figure out how it works, and you make the phone calls. And then know what they're going to say? They say, okay, good. Deliver me the stuff. Well, when you deliver them the stuff, they're not going to want a box of cucumbers or this and that. The other thing, they're going to want pallets or truckloads. So that means having a larger quantity. Well, how do you get the larger quantity? Either you upscale, which might mean, you know, borrowing more money, then you become another huge, you know, gigantic landholder or you collaborate with your neighbors and you pull your products together to meet the truck the system is already in place we don't have to redesign it absolutely to not to not use that system uh is is foolhardy you don't have to use that system if you don't want to go ahead and invent your own thing however there is a system in place and it works and what makes it work is a certain economy of scale so so back to like the organic valley model uh we don't get the economies of scale necessarily at the individual farm level. We get the economies of scale at the aggregation and distribution level. Um, and because I'm an owner of that company, my equity ownership of that company goes up uh, through the years, so much so that right now uh, that, that qualifies for me as, as a retirement account. I can, I can, I can, I wouldn't be, wealthy by any stretch of the imagination, but I can retire right now and, and draw off my, uh, my ownership in, uh, in Organic Valley. So as permaculturists, we can still have our small holdings. However, if we pool our resources together and own the company that, you know, aggregates it and markets and distributes it, we, we uh, gain equity in our own farms and we gain equity in this business that's now successfully distributing our products. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a process of actuating a dream is kind of getting over the dream because you, the dream is no longer the dream when you're living it, when you're actually working it, because you're in the mire, you're figuring it out and problem solving. Well, and, and think about just what, what you would explain to me with your situation, with your wife's illness and an infant, infant son, a son, right? Yeah. He stayed with the all of a sudden be in that situation, you had no choice. You will figure out how to survive. So it was really, I think, quite fortunate for my wife and I when we first got started here. We've got an infant son, we've got another one on the way, and we're on a piece of degraded, worn-out property, uh, $50,000 in debt, before we even acquired the real estate. Uh, no jobs, no prospects. We had no recourse other than to succeed. Absolutely. It was a, a wonderful motivator. Oh, by the way, we don't have a house. Uh, I'm going to build a house. <laughs> Have I ever built a house before? No, I'm going to learn how. I was just talking yesterday with my youngest son. He's back from college right now, and uh, talking about some of the some of the thrills of uh, you know living the lifestyle that we've lived. I mean, I got to build a house, a concrete block foundation, rainwater catchment, you know, solar off grid, 
um, solar thermal, you know, photovoltaics. I've learned how to do wiring, and, and I can point to all these different things. Oh, yeah, post and beam construction. And, of course, I'd never done it before. I opened up a book, started reading, and, and started drawing lines with a pencil. And I tell you what, it does not look like a master craftsman, um, but I was able to do it by, you know, cut that tree down. You know, trim it this way with this saw, trim it that way with these chisels and put it all together. Wow, it works. It's a nice, warm, cozy, uh, off-grid, roof water catchment, rainwater, all that kind of stuff. It's a really cool little place. And I got to learn how to do it, and we've had a blast. That's my dream, too. Oh, man. I, and I'm, I'm going to have to look at areas outside of California if I want land, because California land is just so crazy expensive, so... I'll probably be moving closer to you at some point soon. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a place right across the street right now that uh, that we're in the process of negotiating for. So um, it's got a it's got a house on it. It's a brick house, but it was lived in by an old man, and so it's like half newspapers, and it's probably like ratchet five feet deep. Mm. Um, but it's it's available and totally reasonable, eighty acres. Wow, that's probably awesome. Around, probably around the probably around the ballpark of three hundred thousand. Man. We can immediately plug immediately plug you into several different outlets for for products that you could grow and uh, raise and sell. Yeah, I bet you could. I know you could. I was looking over at uh, at your website. So, are you selling um, bare roots, or are they are they seeds you're selling? Are you... They're they're bare root dormant. They're probably like usually between oh twelve and twenty four inches tall. Man. Um, Oh, that's many amazing. Of hazelnuts are multi, many of the hazelnuts are multi-stemmed. So, um, so do you ever do tree uh, trees from seed? <laughs> Where the hell do you think you get trees from? No, no, no. I know, I know, I know. But I mean, like, when you started <laughs> out, when I was reading about you starting out and I was listening to uh, the po- the podcast with Diego, it, it, it sounded like you went with the wholesaler and bought, like, seedlings and then grew those out or bought just bought trees at a price and then sold them to just make things work. And I'm trying to well, figure yeah, that out too. I needed a uh, hundred apple root stocks, and I was looking back then. That this was like you'd have a, a catalog. This one wholesaler looking through their, their their catalog, and it would cost me this much money if I got a hundred. But if I got five hundred, it would only cost me uh, just for math's sake. It would only cost me you know um, two dollars if I get five hundred uh, of them. So I talked to an apple orchardist down the road. I said, hey, dude, you know, you want 400 apple root stocks? I know you're going to be putting in a lot, all that anyway, so why don't you just let me buy them? That way we, I can get the discount. And he's like, yeah, sure, no problem. So uh, now I'm looking at the catalog again. I can order my 500 root stocks, so I'll get mine for 2 bucks instead of 3 bucks. Well, then I looked. It only was going to cost me another $100 to get an extra 500 So I bought 1000 So I bought 1000 His... His uh, 400 paid for my 100. Well, then I have this 500 left over to sell where I sell, and I could, I could sell everybody uh, these rootstocks at a at a supersonic discount. Um, that's where I got that whole idea at first. It's like, well, I'll just do this wholesale nursery biz because at first, one of the things that I'm doing on the farm also is gathering genetic material from every single source around the country in Canada wherever I can get it. So I have a wide diversity of genetics to do my own selections from. And so I would buy from wholesalers, you know, all across the country, uh, plant some out at the farm, resell uh, some to pay for mine, 
and to you know to put a little uh, cash in the bank. And so, basically, all of the trees on New Forest Farm, uh, they were put in either uh, at no cost or at a profit. Amazing. And so some people say, well, yeah, and even if you rent land, it's, it's, it's foolish to put in trees if you're just renting the land. It's like, are you kidding? If I put trees in the ground and I, my nursery makes 50 cents per tree that I put in the ground, I'm planting trees wherever I go. Yep. Right? Yeah. Why, why would I not plant trees if I could put them in the ground and make a profit? Well, then after a few years, because of the ruthless selection process that we go through, and I, uh, most people, of course, are familiar with it now, it's STUN, Strategic Total Utter Neglect or Sheer Total Utter Neglect. Um, it's, it's basically uh, mass selection um, breeding, which was really, uh, really pushed to the limits by Luther Burbank uh, way back in the early 20th century. He's actually a human being that has uh, more plant varieties credited to his name than anybody else. And I think it's like something like 800 vegetable varieties alone or something like that. It's a crazy amount of, of uh, varieties that he came up with. And he never took notes. He, he was always harassed by scientists that he's, you know, not scientific. Well, of course not. He's, he's producing plant varieties. And, uh, you know, he was a, he's, his potatoes are the, the, the russet Burbank potato, the, the, you know, the French fried potato par excellence. So he, he pioneered it at one point in time. It was called Burbanking, you know, this mass selection. You just plant a ton of seed, and you have your list of criteria that this plant will behave this way, it will look this way, have this color, whatever it was. And if the plant that comes out of the ground does not have uh, the traits that you're looking for, you just rip it out and put it in a pile and burn it or compost it or do whatever you want, feed it to animals. And so that's the process that we used on the farm. And the, for Wisconsin, the trait that I was looking for was super cold hardy because twice in the past 20 years, we've hit 50 below zero. Um, the official airport uh, like thermometer reading was like 42 below, but this was on the bank in the Farge, Wisconsin. So it had to be cold hardy. It also has to be able to handle heat because we get to like 116 degrees in the summertime. It's horrible with humidity. It's going to be uh, disease resistant. And in hazelnuts, that was uh, eastern silver blight resistance. And chestnut, that's uh, chestnut blight resistant. And it's going to be super productive really early. And so we select for with hazelnuts, uh, uh, we got it down to three years uh, when they start producing nuts. Well, the last batch that's coming through. Uh, we put them in the ground, and 80%, 80% of the plants uh, flowered the very first year. Wow. So what that means, that means is we have the ability to breed new uh, woody plant varieties as fast as we can breed um, annuals if we have that hyper that hyper precocity in the, uh, the gene pool. That's incredible. If you've got a knee-high plant, and it's flowering at year one, it's not going to produce like 50 bushels of, of you know, fruit or nuts or whatever you're looking for. It's only going to produce one or two. But if you have a whole field of these things, now you're talking to some serious quantity. And, and I actually got uh, flamed on stage once by a, a university professor who researches chestnuts, and I won't mention his name, <laughs> because I told him that uh, on this particular acre of chestnuts right here, 
the second year, I, I, I harvested 50 pounds of chestnut the second year from one-year-old seedling nursery stock. And he just flamed me up and down the left and right. No way, impossible, can't do that. You, know, you just can't do that, won't happen. Well, his method of growing chestnuts was to plant them orchard style, which means you'd put them on a 30 by 30 grid for a grand total of 59 plants per acre. Well, I put him in uh, probably a foot apart within the row, double rows that were uh, three feet between them, and then another another like, 10 or 15 feet, and then it would be another double row. So on that one acre, there was about 4,000 plants. You got them to fight. So out of 4,000 4, plants, yes, I got 50 pounds of nuts the second year. I did. Yeah. Well, you, can't do that with, you can't do that with 50 trees. You could do it with four thousand trees. But also, when you do that, you're getting the tree. The trees, like you know, their signals are going out. They know the other trees are next to them, and so they're pu- yeah. they're pulling out all the stops. They're like, "I'm gonna beat you," and so they're like gunning. They're all everyone's gunning. Everyone's gotta like reproduce. You're, you, I mean, you're creating this situation where. And it's brilliant. I mean, that that's the that's the 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 thing is your goals are completely different than the goals because your goals are genetic, and most people don't even understand this. Um, I, I I was pulling stuff recently uh, in the past few years from I was looking at it recently. The Grin database. Do you know about this? What the Grin database? It's the USDA germplasm like database. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Carol Depp. Yeah, Carol Depp turned me on to this. And so I started like researching all this stuff and going through their 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 catalog, which is just giant, you know. And I started calling the different um areas in different um experimental fields um and talking to people about this. And I was wondering, did you use any of their database stuff with uh with your cuz did you just use commercial because I've seen such a difference between buying from like the commercial databases or commercial collections and then the grin database i didn't use any from from uh that database because i didn't know of its existence at the time oh okay well i i, I like plus, some of their stuff remember, back 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 when i got started we're talking telephones and if you make a long distance call it's going to cost you a buck fifty to call outside of your town uh, you had to write letters like with either a typewriter or handwritten or you print one on a computer. Uh, and we were living, you know, in a camper on a hundred acres with no electricity, no running water. So how do you get access to these information and tools? You know, I had no way to find out. <laughs> it's a different, it's a different world. It, it really, really was. You know, I think about that all the time because I'm the last person in my family to type. On a typewriter, and to use the whiteout and go back, and then there was the typewriter that actually allowed you to erase that came out. I, I mean, I remember right. all these things. Yeah, I mean, just I mean, just talk, we're talking on. I'm talking on a cell phone right now. Uh, I can remember when the first um, bag of phones came out. They were like the size of a, you know, a small dog, and you'd carry it in your car, and you'd make, you know, you'd save it for emergencies, and you put the antenna up on your roof with this magnet. And maybe if you were lucky, it would find a satellite somewhere and you'd be able to talk to somebody in an emergency for like five bucks a, a second. And now we've got, I've got this little thing I can do internet and GPS and all kinds of different crazy apps. So, yeah, it's a different world now. 
But yeah. but we still have sun, rain, uh, we have wind, we have soil, we have plants, and they're on a different time scale, and they're in a, a whole entirely different uh, realm. And I, what I really like about uh, what my life has been like, I'm, I'm 53 now, I was 22 years old when I, you know, dropped, uh, like, Western civilization behind. Um, I have not had a job since 1983. That's awesome. And I've, and I've lived in the woods. I've lived on the planet, with the planet, uh, utilizing the planet's natural systems and resources as my economy. I've eaten food that I've grown. Uh, I, you know, I grow trees, I plant trees, um, I teach people about growing trees, planting trees, and so on. And I've, I live within the systems of nature and the cycles of nature. I don't live in town and talk about the systems of nature and talk about living in nature. I'm coming from within nature. And, and that's, that's true. That's, what, that's how I've lived for the past 30 years of my life. And that's something that very few people um, bring to the table these days. Yeah, do you know anyone else that's kind of doing that? Because you've got the, I, I, what I see as the cutting edge for the entire movement that's happening right now in America. Because you've already got it in the ground. It's the genetics are, are, are have gone through the stun method, which a lot of us, you know, we're getting there. I'm getting. I'm doing throw sow uh, seeds. I'm getting things that are more drought tolerant. I'm getting things larger and bigger. I'm not growing without you know without like. I mean, I'm still doing compost tea. I'm still doing stuff. You know, I'm still developing. I'm not doing what you're doing, which is absolutely incredible. Right. My my wife's gonna get in the car, so the door's gonna slam and stuff like that. Well, one of the things also about uh, you know the back to the stun breeding method briefly is is the fact that. You look at how a, uh, a tree, any kind of plant, actually, the tree all of a sudden has like a zillion seeds that go out. Now there's a zillion of these little seedlings. There is a, a, an amount of competition between them for resources. They also have to be adapted to that site. And so what, what ends up happening when you're using that kind of breeding technique is you're coming up with a land race that uh, you don't need to add all these doodads and stuff to the soil because it's adapted to that particular site in those particular conditions. Absolutely. So a lot of, the, a, a lot of the, the techniques, you know, from the compost and the teas and the biochars and the, you know, how to use this kind of spray to get that kind of bug, all those become somewhat irrelevant because, you know, you allow the, the plants that have the characteristics that can survive your location are the ones that survive your location. That's awesome. I kind of see it. I mean, I'm doing it too. What I did, I got 12 varieties of mustard from all over the planet. And I threw, throw sowed them on the edges of all my systems. And so last summer, a whole area didn't get watered that grew mustard. And now the, with the winter rains, it's all regrowing. And it's all genetically mixed. So I've got this mustard land race. And I, I mean, I, I see it as like ham-fisted science. You know, I'm burning through lots of genetics, but I'm also boiling them down as I'm flipping all the epigenetic switches towards my location and being self-reliant little plants. Right. And, and particular characteristics like, uh, 
you know, certain test or disease resistances, um, you may not have those on your site. And so that's why we always want to be bringing in at least some new genetics uh, because there'll be characteristics, qualities that, that we, we find desirable that somebody else has. You bring them in, and yeah, a lot of them are going to not make it, and that's okay. They're not interested in those. <laughs> I think that's absolutely true. Rejuvenating the genetic diversity of your stock can be actually really critical. Um, I think that the white and, and yellow corn, this American standard corn is a wonderful example about that. It's like a dead end, you know, there's not nutritional value in it. Um, I'm exploring like flower corns and exploring all these different color, different, all these different corn that no one has been eating for all these, all this time. And it's, because these, these these edges are where we're gonna find these new new species that are gonna be what we need. By having the uh, system in place where we understand and we know, and this is how we operate, we always will be doing genetic selection on our plants, and we will always be selecting for plants and breeding our own plants. Think about an apple orchardist. They're not thinking about breeding their apples. They're buying them in the nursery. They put them in the ground. They're just thinking of harvesting and selling fruit. That's well, a problem. We're always breeding our plants. We're always breeding our animals. We're always, you know, no matter what our plants are. Yeah, we got to decide whether we're running a daycare for plants or whether we're running like <laughs> like la large landscape repair with plants because we could have these mature, you know, catalysts that can like change an ecosystem or we can have things that we need to just baby and keep. Oh, baby fell. Oh no. You know, we we don't want that. <laughs> I think that, that is definitely, it is some of the, the survival technology, you know, the growing technology of the future here. I'm so excited. And continual plant breeding. That's so exciting. So so what do you have right now that you're working on that you're super excited about that you are, uh, that you're going to reveal soon, that you're working on maybe? So what what's coming up? Well, I've got a, a water management book, you know, on uh, earth shaping, uh, simple farm scale earth shaping for water management that's coming out pretty soon uh what i'm actually uh, uh of course i'm excited about the trees um pine nuts uh, especially korean pine the pinus coriensis uh is rather uh tricky it doesn't always sprout and behave itself um so having some larger and larger harvests of a pine nut. So we have quite a few pine nuts available for sale. And that's actually something that we can sell in California. We can't sell chestnuts or uh, hazelnuts in California. But um, what I really like the most is how much research is happening and uh, thought being put toward ecosystems-based adaptation to climate change, to a whole host of, uh, of different issues. And it's, and it's, it's gone through so many levels, uh, so many layers. It's uh, being discussed at, you know, local and regional levels. It's being uh, discussed at the federal levels. I just got back from uh, the Paris talks. It's being discussed internationally as using, using ecosystems for our, our adaptive capacity uh, as human beings and to develop ecosystems-based agriculture. I kid you not, let's talk about that at the, uh, at the UN conference on, on climate change. Wow, so this is incredible news. I didn't know this. I knew I had heard that we had representatives from our community going, but I had no idea that 
you were you went and you spoke. So can you tell us more about that? Oh, uh, well, it was a panel discussion, and of course, there's like a, a zillion people that have to get heard. And what happens is the agenda uh, of our panel discussion changes through time as all these other people who are participating at the level of, of throwing forward the ideas that get talked about. So it was somewhat miraculous uh, that I got invited in the first place. Um, so then there were like six people on the panel, and we were discussing you know, this, this ecosystems-based agriculture. And so you get a little few minutes of an introduction. I think it was like five minutes of an introduction. Then it turned into a discussion between members of the panel. And, uh, I mean, I mean, it's just amazing. The, the people, even, even, uh, <laughs> this guy, uh, representing Pepsi, you know, they're, they're, they're talking about it. Pepsi. That's a pretty big company. I think. That's absolutely incredible. And the thing is about with these systems that we're, we're working on, um, obviously you're leading the way. We're all trying to catch up, um, but time is against us. You, you're definitely going to stay ahead. Um, is that we, we've got to just put these things in place. We've got to use the people in place because everyone wants this deep down inside. And these things, they spread. They're the, the, that's the whole nature of it, that they spread. So... Ah, man, that's so exciting. So what, the book's going to come out. Is it self-published or are you going through like uh, Chelsea Green? That one's going to be going through Acres USA. I've uh, chosen Acres USA as my publisher because uh, the deal was better for me. Uh, other publishers wanted too many things in their court. So I have a lot more autonomy. And I also chose Acres USA because they target farmers. And... You know, farmers are the largest landowners. You know, farmers and ranchers and, and natural resource, you know, foresters are the, are the largest landowners, private landowners in the U.S., and that's why I wanted to target them. So it will be through Acres USA. And my concern is that if permaculturists don't uh, start producing food uh, at this scale fast, these other big companies are going to do it and miss the whole... Uh, equitable uh, economic system somehow. I don't want that to happen. And that's absolutely true. If permaculturists don't step up, the companies will just absorb the techniques and discard the ethics. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Because, um, do you know the number one tree planting company in the world plants more trees than any other company? No. Specifically for carbon sequestration. Huh. Cargill. Whoa. They're considered a big, evil, monstrous, nasty conglomerate. They're the biggest tree planters in the world. Wow, I had no idea. That is incredible. And you know, I mean, that's kind of it. You know, so... their economic ethics? Yeah, so I don't know if you know where I'm from. I'm from New England, so... And I went to NYU and... And so... And well, I'm just saying, like, the, the, these people that we call these like evil industry people, like, a lot of them went to school, worked hard, climbed a ladder, found themselves in charge of something, and answering to a board of directors, and 
they've just been just working. They're not studying things in their free time. They're just working. They're working weekends. And they've been doing this for 40 years. And they're doing it so that their kids can all go to the best schools. And, you know, I mean, like, I know tons of these people because I grew up kind of in those circles. And they all mean well. They all are trying to, like, help their families out or help themselves out. Some of them, you know, go down dangerous paths and become, you know, these these selfish people and, and all those things happen and all those things are also true. But I think demonizing parts of ourselves, because they're ourselves too, right? We're all related. We're all participating in this this economy. I mean, we're buying everything from them, correct, as people, right? And so... That's not helpful. That's not a helpful technique. Yeah, we got to recognize that we're all in this together. And I think that's what, what's happening, like, with this this amazing news. I mean, who else was on the panel with you? Um, did you know other people on the panel with you? Oh, boy, I don't remember all their names right now, but they were from... Uh, one was, a, uh, like I mentioned, was a representative for, for Pepsi and other companies. Uh, there was... Uh, like this, oh jeez, I'll have to go back and look. But there, there was um, uh, one who was involved with uh, the International uh, Agroforestry Association, whatever they're called, I forget that, from the, the UN Agroforestry, ICRAF, I-C-R-A-F, look it up, I don't know what that means. One was a guy from there, there was another from the Catholic Relief uh, Organization, whatever they call themselves, worldwide charge of you know larger projects uh there was someone from uh a department of agriculture i think south africa uh, so it was it was a it was a broad spectrum of people who were we were all basically gathered around talking about uh ecosystems based agriculture amazing and, and because it, because it was at the at the climate change conference is all about in order to sequester carbon. That's awesome. That's amazing. And I think the the greater conversation from that, which is the next step, I think, is the um, ecological economy. And right. And I think I was I was I was reading something else that you were talking about about when you were starting out. You didn't do just one thing. You created an ecology of a home economy. And it was all right. these different aspects that you linked together. And I think a lot of people don't, don't get that. They, they do all eggs in one basket. But can you tell us something about that, how that, how that developed? Uh, how, how it developed? Well, um, it, it's kind of hard to say because uh, uh, it, it sometimes seems silly. It's like, there's no way this guy could have thought of all this stuff like 20 years ago. It's like, well, yeah, I, I did actually. Uh, we need to have an ecological means of production that's at scale. At the scale meaning we've got, you know, 9 billion mouths to feed on this planet. Uh, it is an international mechanized food system. It has to be mechanizable. Um, so that has to happen. So that means we have to start inventing the machines and the equipment that will do all that. That's another one of my side things. I've got a patent on, on uh, you know, uh, nut handling equipment. Um, we're working on harvesters and that sort of thing. So that had to happen. We had to actually have the ecological agricultural system in the ground. So that had to happen. We need to also have the uh, product aggregation and marketing in place. 
And so, you know, I've been involved with Organic Valley for for 20 years. That has been, you know, the primary uh, uh, marketing infrastructure for our produce. And yes, I could probably get, you know, another extra dollar per pound or whatever for my asparagus if I sell it myself or have a CSA or a farmer's market, but that's not the point. The point is we're part of creating a larger business uh, that's that's making a, a dramatic change in the world. And I, I argue that uh, Organic Valley is a major player uh, <laughs> in the organic movement. We have been for, for 20, 20 plus years. So that has to happen within the permaculture movement. And there's two different ventures I've been working on with that that uh, I can talk about later because anytime you get people trying to collaborate with one another, it's always uh, fascinating you know, because of differing opinions and different speeds of people doing things. So that had to happen. Well, if we're going to be setting up these systems, we need to have the plant breeding in place. So had to do the plant breeding in order to, to make that happen. And if we're going to be breeding all these plants, we need an outlet to cash flow everything to sell plants. So we need to have a nursery. So all of that needed to happen. And so that's what I kind of did as I started by doing it all. Well, as time goes on, however, each of the individual smaller businesses get bigger and bigger. Organic Valley was uh, a different case. I wasn't one of the founders. I joined uh, this collaborative venture. As the businesses get bigger and more mature, uh, they need to create uh, the new job descriptions from within to handle all the different tasks that need to happen. And so you know, uh, on, the, on the design and consulting side of things, I'm now working with a, a team of other folks, and I'm doing less and less as others are doing more and more. The same's happening on the nursery side of things, and we're, you know, currently in negotiation also with the uh, uh, the cidery side of things. So someone will have someone else run that business. Will that's part of what we're also doing as as permaculturists and designers is we are creating a new businesses and. Uh, we need to start them, set them up, and allow them to grow from the inside and not try to uh, do everything ourselves all the time. <laughs> well, you know, I totally agree with that. And I think maybe some people might be getting that knee-jerk reaction where they're like, wait, but all of us can do our own food on wherever we live right now, you know. But that's not quite true if you live in New York City. Um, right. You can't grow the, your, your bread. Where's your field going to go? You know what I mean? I think it's some, something like 90% of the human race lives in cities of 250,000 or more. Um, they're currently getting their food somehow. That means there is currently a food system in place. We need to supply that food system with right. permaculturally grown products. Well, we need, yeah, we need to infect it and then ino or inoculate it and have it, you know, change. <laughs> and, and how that happens is by actually producing something. How Organic Valley was the first certified organic fluid milk uh, on the market in the U.S., you know, way back when. Uh, it was so new, it was not even on the store shelves. Uh, I can remember the conversations around the picnic tables trying to figure out how to do this. Okay, we need to, you know, get this plant, get this, you know, facility going, have the packaging, have the labels. We need money. we got to borrow some money, put together the business plan. You go to the bank. The bank says, oh, show me the market data. 
and it's like, well, there, there isn't any market data on organic fluid milk because there's no fluid milk being produced right, organic fluid milk being produced right now. Then the bank says, well, if you can't show me the market data for organic fluid milk, we can't loan you the money. And so what we're doing as permaculturists is we have to create the, uh, we have to create the products at scale and the value add at scale to introduce them into the marketplace um, before the marketplace shows itself. You know, you'll never find market data on permaculturally grown XYZ PDQ if nobody's growing XYZ PDQ and selling it into the market. Absolutely. My, I mean, my dad asked me the same exact question. He's like, okay, so show me with your course, you know, show me the projections on your earnings for the next year. And it's like, huh. Right. <laughs> but but it's then, it's completely valid because it's a metric that gets you money, gets you through the door. Right. And so what's been, been frustrating for me is being a guy who, you know, talks to a lot of uh, buyers of products. All right, all right, just take, for example, today. I was talking with a, with a person who wants to buy oil. You know how much oil he wants to buy every month? 60,000 gallons. Whoa. Okay, great. Where do we come up with 60,000 gallons a month? You know, oh, but he, he wants it all done in ecological systems, and yada, yada. It's like, well, whoa, whoa, it's going to take some time here. But where, where is everybody? You know, the, the problem isn't that there's a lack of a market. The problem is that there's a lack of product being grown. And yeah. so here's a good example. Uh, you go to <laughs> any farmer's market or whatever, and you see people standing around during zucchini season, and everybody's got zucchinis, and nobody's selling zucchini worth a hoop because uh, everybody's got it, and if there's any gardens nearby, people are growing their own zucchini anyways. It's zucchini season. I've seen this in you know other countries around the world. It's in Haiti, for example people sitting on the side of the road with a napkin piled with a little, you know, pile of coffee beans and they're trying to sell coffee. There's like 3,000 people sitting on the side of the road trying to sell coffee. Well, everybody's got coffee bushes in their backyard. There's really nobody buying any coffee. So the individual gets the real experience. It's genuine, actual feedback that nobody's buying any coffee. There's no market for coffee. When in actuality, the problem is uh, that's not the real market. The real market is all of you guys put your coffee together in one big pile, and we send it on a boat or a plane off to somewhere else. And what you find out is you don't have enough to justify the expense of the truck. You don't have a, enough to justify the expense of the boat or the plane or whatever. So the problem isn't too much, even though the individuals see that that's the problem, you know, because they can't sell their coffee, get put their coffee, no market for it. The real problem is you don't have enough that's not the real market where you're getting your, your feedback from. And I see that over and over and over and over again. I kid you not, today was that oil conversation. This guy flabbergasted the, the numbers he's talking. Wow. Well, I feel yeah. like, you know, a lot of people don't understand that the large-scale land restoration that we need to get done, maybe the only way we're going to get it done is if we become farmers and buy up the land through you know, the standard practice. <laughs> oh, also, I didn't mention that, that the other enterprise, too, is that really that one of the healthiest ways for me, anyways, to look at what I, I'm doing, you know, to my enterprise ecosystem is uh, a real estate developer. You know, buying real estate, making 
changes ecologically and you know making some buildings and all that kind of stuff and and developing real estate so this is this is uh economic development par excellence but we have to actually do it and collaborate with one another so we can have enough product to, to access the real market and uh, then we can make change that way right and otherwise, that's kind of what you know that's kind of otherwise what's going to happen is is the large multinationals who are already in this business already doing this kind of stuff they're going to and that was actually one of the conversations that was had uh, at uh, at the UN conference that I got into a little bit of back and forth with the Pepsi Monsanto guy is the fact that they need to increase production by X gazillion you know barrels this that and the other thing and there's not enough land available it's like dude <laughs> yes there is look there's all this land on this planet it's just that people happen to live there and so what 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 I can do is I can show you that overnight, you know, you can exponentially increase your uh, production of this particular crop. There's plenty of land available for it. There's people living there right now, and now they all of a sudden have a means of economic livelihood. But what this means is working with people, lots of people, and people working together collaboratively, not exploitatively. And so, you know, he, he I don't know if he did it, uh, so much out of personal conviction or because it uh, looks good on stage in front of the cameras. Basically, he's like, yep, exactly right. We've got to fund exactly these kinds of projects just like you're doing. It's the new way of doing you know, business and carbon sequestration, blah, blah, blah. Wow, you have it on film? Uh, somebody does. Woo, we got to replay that and post it everywhere. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> Well, let's not get let's not have the guy lose his job, okay? <laughs> uh, well, if you go big enough, he's a hero, right? Exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> well, awesome. So I really, you know, because I've been I've been sitting on the fence, and I feel like a lot of people are. They're like, okay, I want to do this. I'm kind of I'm learning in my backyard. I'm doing the experimental side of the equation, you know, like, like you talk about with your early stage, you tried everything, you put everything in the ground. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm doing, I've been doing that for years with rareseeds.com, uh, Jarrah selection. I've been going through it and I've, man, I've grown hundreds of different varieties of things and I grow hundreds now, but it's because of the experience that I understand it. And now I know what I would invest my money into growing because I know what people like and I also know what grows well here, you know. That that cross vector, so I feel like I I I don't know. I just feel like I need to buy a huge amount of land and make it pay for its own changeover. I I I just think that uh, acquisition of you know uh, degraded land by permaculturists and have it being. You know, put into a, some sort of restoration agriculture system. I think that's the way to really move change forward. I mean, we can make some serious ecological change on the planet uh, if we all do our part. Instead of waiting around for somebody else to do it, you know, at a certain scale, let's just jump. Yeah, I jump. think I think there's this weird. I don't know where it comes from. I think public schooling did it to them, but 
they, there's this belief that we can legislate change when it's us that's making the 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 the, the current trend happen so it's like right. we're the ones paying the oil companies to drill i don't know who told you we weren't but we are right. the ones <laughs> we are them yeah and we just need to change well, we that. are they we are they indeed yeah so yeah. I, I I feel like that's what I have to do. I have to make the land pay for itself, pay for its own repair is the only way I can afford to do it. And so I'm I'm starting a nursery and I'm gonna I'm I'm probably gonna do exactly what you did, which is buy bulk and then get a bunch of, I'm gonna do inverse a combination of your things. I'm gonna get a bunch of people in my local area to um be partners in a system and I'm gonna be like, Alright, well you're gonna do all the persimmons for you know, and so we're going to order all this bulk and then everyone's going to get a little extra and they'll be able to plant some. And I'm going to get a whole group together and we're going to be the the tendrils of a giant nursery for the mountain area. That's great. That's beautiful. That's really good. And, and see, the thing is, there's enough, there is enough uh, land in need of that kind of earth repair that there's, there's no uh, foreseeable end in sight to all of the plant material that we can generate. I mean, if there's uh, uh, Union of Concerned Scientists data that I saw saying that there's 100 million square miles uh, within uh, the equatorial region, within like five degrees of the equator, of land that was former uh, tropical forest, either either rainforest or monsoon forest, that was clear-cut logged, burned, uh, put into annual agriculture, and then abandoned. So 100 million square miles of abandoned tropical real estate that is in need of repair. So what if we go in and we start planting a system of 5, 10, 20 different uh, you know, perennial woody plants, replant these forests, and sell the products from it? Now it becomes an income-producing restoration project. So is That's that the whole point. Is that That's free land? That's restoration agriculture. Wow. Is that what? free land? free no of course not it's going to be purchased right but but it's so beaten down it's probably cheap right yeah, yeah right exactly right and, yeah. it, and it's a tough nut you know yeah. it's a tough nut look at what neil spackman's doing over in saudi arabia you know and, and it's slower uh when it's really really degraded um and you don't have the rainfall it, it's gonna take a while and, and don't sweat that and have you know a strip of grass that's like three feet wide, you know, that, that is green for two months out of the year where there never used to be any grass, that's a victory. Absolutely. You know, having, having, you know, hard scrabble pistachio trees hanging on, growing out of these solid rocks where there were none before, that's a victory. Absolutely. And, and if there's enough of us who are involved in this, this movement, if we actually, each one of us, start doing something somehow, somewhere, uh, just look at the numbers, the, the change that we can affect, change that we can affect. You know, if I was able to take 100 acres in Wisconsin, now multiply that by, say, 50,000 people, so 50,000 times 100, that's a, that's a big chunk of real estate. And then, of course, not that the idea will catch on, it's catching on. And, and my, what I, what I was saying earlier, is my... Uh, you know, biggest disappointment is that it hasn't been the permaculture movement that's catching on to it. It's, it's, uh, it's, the, it's the 
larger corporations who see they, they, are, they have a longer-term vision. You know, they say, oh, yeah, sure. After 20 years, these expenses go away. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and that's the thing is it does make economic sense. And as you said, you alluded to earlier, Eric Olson said the same exact thing. There's no competition right now. There's right. no one doing it. So it's a completely open field, and that's, you know scary for people that have been taught to just imitate other people but at the same time you're an example grant schultz is an example and 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 you guys are doing it differently assuredly but i mean that's the thing we have examples of people doing this we just need to get the boots on the ground and, and there are there are uh going to be there will be as many different you know slightly different uh, takes on the whole uh, system of techniques based on the individuals. That's that's called you know individual difference. Creativity of, of of the person determines what their system's going to look like, how their marketing strategy is going to be like, what the how their whole life unfolds. It's be different. Every every life is different. And that's good because the genetics are going to be different that comes out of those systems, and then we get to trade with them. <laughs> And, and that's what's great. I, what I like about that also is you start, because the, the, the process of going around, like I did with going around the country to get genetic material from all over the place and bringing it to my place and selecting for a certain uh, suite of characteristics, that's what I did. Well, then you know, that's a good place for somebody else to start. Uh, let's say you're in New York State. Okay, get a whole bunch of material from me, but also get a whole bunch of material from you know wherever else you can. And then we start doing this exchange back and forth uh, the, the the varieties that we're going to be coming up with um, is there's just phenomenal. I think it's just incredible the opportunities we have. There's actually a uh, Kevin Wolds W O L Z of the Woody Perennial Polyculture Site at University of Illinois in Urbana. He personally has a uh, a, a ten acre planting um, that's heavily loaded with. Uh, the big diversity is currants, C-U-R-R-A-N-T-S. He has, I think, like 1,200 different varieties of current growing in this, the same 10-acre uh, polyculture planting he's got going on. Why on earth would you need 1,200 varieties of currants? Well, he's not stupid. <laughs> he's mixing up the genetics. There are, there are current bushes. They're living in the same field uh, on his private planting that... Uh, haven't even existed on the same continent before. So what do you think is going to happen three, five years from now when he starts doing what? Oh, saving the seed and planting the seed. Ha! Lo and behold, he's going to have new current varieties within within five or ten years. Mark yep. my word. Yep. Why? Because he's actually doing it. He's actually doing it. Nothing's going to happen unless we actually do stuff. Do you believe that we're at this, uh, you know, it's funny that we're talking about how permaculturists are choosing education, and I feel like they're stumbling over the first step, which is educating people about their food and plants and gardening, you know what I mean? They're not turning around and doing the big things and being like, this is a forest, you know, this is an oak savanna, you know, and I think that what's... We don't have to invent, we don't have to invent fancy guilds of plants and just look at what nature has been doing for zillions and trillions of years. She's got it figured out. 
Absolutely. And I think going to those kind of foundational um, units to create a system is incredibly important. But also, I think that we're entering a plant renaissance because we went through this decline where we lost all this genetic material and diversity that we spent our families basically spent thousands of years breeding and providing for us and handing down um, all this monoculture stuff basically made it pushed it out of the market so it went out of style and then went out of production and went out of seed saving but i think we're at this moment where there's this renaissance happening where people are like yeah you know there are other colors of strawberries they're you know i i, I want to taste that there's this yeah. curiosity that's beginning. They're like, you know, that nut, I've never tasted. What does that tree look like? You know, there's this beginning, there's a change happening, and it's. I'm really excited. I think a lot of it has to do with the rising generation seeing that there's nothing for them. And they want to do something ethical. They want to do something outside. They've been 12, 16 years indoors in front of a computer now. There's a new thing happening, yep. and I can't wait for your book to come out and to spread that and for that to influence more people. Do you have a, a, a course coming up, maybe? Oh, you'll have to go to the, uh, the RAD Facebook page and look at the schedule ahead of time. <laughs> Restora Restoration Agriculture Development. Talking with chickadees, come on. <laughs> you got your priorities straight, clearly. Um <laughs> I can totally just put a link in. I can just put a link in into the side, yeah. and so and, and I do. I do see that we are in a renaissance, and one of the things that that is necessary. It's really, really cool, actually. The problems of this world are so huge and so confounding and so crazy that the answer needs to be so huge and confounding and crazy. And the new way of of addressing that is instead of like. Uh, building a bigger airplane to move, you know, 500 people from point A to point B will be a bigger flock of starlings. We're all little independent captains of our own little ships, but we're working together and we're going in the same direction. Yeah, like it's a flock of much starlings, easier. We can, we can go apart, we can come back together, the pattern changes. You know, if, if a few birds fall from the sky, it's no big deal. You lose one bolt on that airplane, that whole thing comes down and everybody perishes. And so with... with all of us doing our little part, no matter where we are, with the resources that we have, whatever we can, uh, it is making a huge difference. Making a huge difference. And start with your food. Start with your food. Absolutely. And then, then get your water tied up. If you're in California, get your water, your roof catchment in. Well, Mark, it has been an absolute pleasure and a thrill. I love talking to you. And okay. you, blew, you blew my mind several times, this conversation. I can't wait to share it with everyone. Okay. <laughs> Alrighty then. Wow, that was incredible. Mark Shepard. Just talked at the UN, fresh from the UN, coming over here, talking to us on permaculture tonight. I can't tell you how grateful I feel right now. That was amazing. And man, he didn't pull out any stops. He stayed, he talked to us, he gave us everything he could. That is Mark Shepard. He is like a fire hose. And we have a fire on this planet and we need more people like him. So if you feel moved by that podcast, if you feel charged up, I encourage you to do the research, check it out, and start your own farm. 
start building equity and credit and start moving onto land and start restoring it because boy it needs to be done all right thank you so much from permaculture tonight